There's a, an, an air of vulnerability that comes off you. Why is that? Say more about that. Say more about it. Is that one of your fucking psychotherapist questions? <laughs> Friends, I'd like to thank you all for coming today. It's been a horrid day, a terrible week. Um, but I did want to talk about Marion, my Marion, a woman who I've loved for 40 years, a woman who, for me, always make the colors brighter. The world a bit easier to live in. Yeah, those are the beautiful words of our guest today, John Clark. Speaking at the funeral of his wife and his partner of 40 years, Marion Finucane, in 2020. Myself and Killian are sitting here in the car just a few hundred yards away from John's home in Kilteel in County Kildare. Because he's just recently published a really, really lovely memoir detailing both his life with Marion and what life has looked like since she's passed away. Welcome to episode. Killian, how are you doing? Richie, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, John has spoken really openly recently about the loneliness that he's felt as an 87-year-old living on his own in the months and the years since Marion passed away. But he's also described in a very moving way, I think, when you read the book, just like what their relationship was like. And it seemed to be, I know you've read it too, it seemed to be full of adventure, full of excitement. I know those words kind of sound cliched but it really is how it does come across isn't it? It really does and there's like a real sweetness to it as well which I think you can kind of get from John's really lovely words in his eulogy there there's a bit where he describes that you know since the time they met up until the the time that Marion passed away they just held hands all the time like teenagers it's like little really beautiful details like that Yeah so I want to I want to speak a lot to him about that relationship and the loss of it um, but also about John's sobriety, he's a recovering alcoholic, as I am, and he's been going to AA meetings for about 30 years now, and from reading the book it does seem like that's a really, really important part of his life. But I also want to explore what was the most difficult period of his life when himself and Marion lost their young daughter, Sinead, to cancer. And that's actually something Marion always struggled to talk about in her life, even at times with John. Mm. But as far as I know, when we do get to the house, I think John's plan is to kick things off by showing us the project he's been working on since Marion died. It's a Zen Buddhist garden at the back of their home. And I've never been to one. I don't know what one looks like or feels like, but from what I heard, this one is meant to be pretty magnificent. Yeah, I think we can only be impressed really, Rich. I'm pretty it sure. Pretty I'm pretty sure I will be, yeah. But before we go and meet John, I just want to say that this week's episode, and indeed the entire series, is brought to you by now. If you spend a lot of time watching sport, as I do, then this is the perfect period to sign up. The start of the new Champions Cup season, it's just around the corner. We've got Munster kicking off the campaign against Exeter and Leinster taking on Rogers La Rochelle. So I would say all in all, if you're going up against the current champions, it's a pretty good time for Leinster to hire uh, the man who's just won the World Cup for South Africa, Jack Nienaber, which they have done. <laughs> yeah, not a bad time at all. We're now offering two sports memberships. You'll be able to watch Sky Sports, TNT Sports and Premier Sports. And if you're like me and football does come first, there's some really, really great games to look forward to in the Premier League mm. too. Man City are playing Liverpool, which is pretty much guaranteed to be an absolute cracker. Newcastle are playing Man U and Chelsea Man U comes just a couple of days after that. So that does really seem like a decent amount of top level sport to get stuck into. So why not give it a go? It's really, really easy to sign up and whether it's for a day or for a month or, and I don't know if it's too early to say, for the festive season, Mm. I don't know. Either way, now has the membership for you. Right, let's go and chat to this week's guest, John Clark. 
on. Glad I wore my white footwear. How are you doing? I'm John. Pleasure to meet you. How are you doing? How are you? This Killian. is Killian. Lovely Killian. to meet you, John. How are you? I'm good. This is the Zen Garden. Yeah. It's pretty magnificent. I need another 40 years. I so. know. <laughs> I do. I, I'm not kidding it. Is this your design? Or yeah. Do you summon in and they throw ideas? Is this all your idea? Uh, idea is a bad word. Creation. Creation, yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's a better word. Yeah. I did a lot of studying. This actually is, when it's finished, is the hardest thing we've ever undertook. It's a 16th century Zen temple. Wow. And it's essentially putting a square on a rectangle. Should you follow this idea? Okay. And, you know, somebody said to me, you know, are you doing this for the... Marion, you know, I said no. I said I'm doing it because of Marion. I wouldn't be the fucking Zen garden if she was alive. <laughs> Why would I do that? And you're doing it because of her now. Because, in the sense that uh, she's dead. Okay. But it's not. It's not for her. Yeah. It's for me. And I felt very empty, and I said I have to do something that'll occupy me. Because we did it together a lot of crazy traveling. Uh, our people might think it was crazy. For instance, I, can we go and sit yes, down? Yes, yes, let's go and sit down. I'm trying my hardest not to, I'm uh, <laughs> trying to tell the stories. <laughs> can I give you a health? Maeve Binchy, who I knew very well, a gas woman, she and her mates used to meet in that pub in Dorky. And she'd say, we will have an organ recital for three minutes. And the organ recital was what bits of you are falling off or what are you sick with? So everybody threw in their two and fourpence. So I can give you my organ <laughs> recital to start. <laughs> yeah. I have cancer. I've been treated for it. I hope it works. I have COPD. I'm slowly going blind. I think that's about, oh, I have trouble walking as well. But apart from that, I'm grand. Are you in much pain? No. Any discomfort? No. No. The pharmaceutical industry and I have a deal. I'll enlarge their bottom line and they keep me clear of pain, you know. I am currently a pill. I'm not a person anymore. I'm a pill. I take eight or ten pills a day. Right. And I, I'm here. I'm busy. I'm working. And so that's me and health. Over. So does the cancer impact you day to day? No. Okay. I got cancer in the lymph nodes and uh, I got radiators. Uh, and that knocked me about a bit, makes you exhausted, tired. And then they said it went away and then six months later it came back. And then they, I was the same as Hiroshima by the time they finished me with radiation, you know, and I could take no more. And it didn't work. And then they were muttering about chemotherapy. And I said, if he's getting sick into a bowl for two years, I'm out. Yeah. You know, I don't see any point in that. So I'm on immunotherapy, I think it is, where they take your own cells. 
and reintroduced them to. It seems to have quite a success. Okay. Anyway, I'm here. I've just started. I can't tell you whether it works or it doesn't work, but I believe it will for a while. But I'm up against the odds with the maker. That's my problem. And I've been building this Zen garden now for four years. We've just had a little walk around it now. We just got to see some of it. And uh, I need 40 years more to get stage one done. It's an ambitious request. Yeah. Who says you have to die at 80 or 90, you know? Mm. You do, actually, I believe. The odds are quite slim of living. I had a friend who, we buried him last year in Rome. He was 112. Wow. And he did his last degree, strangely enough, in psychiatry when he was 85. Wow. And certainly up to 105, he had all his marbles there. there. There's no laws about living and dying, you know, that I'm aware of. I lost a daughter at 10, you know, she needed a life. I've had a good one, but you can't swap them either, you know. Marion went far too early. She had a perfect death. Her timing was all wrong. Went to bed, we'd flown back from India. Went to bed, said she felt bad and didn't wake up in the morning. That's the way I want to go, but it might be a choice. The only thing is she left it far too early, you know. Other than that, it's the only way to go. This is morbid, isn't it? Well, well, talk about something more interesting. Well, well, go back to your earlier days. Like, when you first met her. Describe that. I don't know how to start. I met this tall woman who's quite argumentative. And uh, there are two versions of this, by the way. I met her going up the steps of an architect friend of mine. And I don't know how the conversation started, but it revolved around Hemingway. Okay. And uh, she was in her feminist mode, and Hemingway was considered mano a mano type. And I said he wasn't, that if you read him properly, he was a very sensitive writer, and so on and so forth. That was the argument, and we proceeded on to discuss writers from there on in until a few years ago. A friend of mine recently, and a friend of Marion's, she's in her 80s, and for the much more romantic version, and she said, Marion told her she met me across a crowded room, etc., etc. I have no recollection of that. I thought I met her on the steps of an office building. Um, Dublin was this with the eighties. The uh, masses policies and. We're beginning to slowly work about industry and there's a lot of building going on. And, but there's a feeling of we were going somewhere now in Ireland, you know, which is a great feeling. And in the circle I knocked around it, there was a lot of partying and lots of business being done here, there and everywhere. Uh, Marion was carried away with her debating skills. She was a super debater. She won the Irish Times debating competition. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, that's where we met. And it was 
either uphill all the way or downhill all the way, depends on your perspective from there on in, you know. So, however or wherever you first met, like, how soon did you start to realise that you had this connection? Very soon. Really? Yeah. A week? That soon? Yeah. Well, I thought she was a fascinating woman. I thought she had a very interesting take on things. Um, it was She did strange things that enamored her to me. She had no money. She was a student. Uh, she did part-time architectural work. They got paid nothing. But she had a little quintacenta, you know, the tiny fields? Yeah, small little ones. And uh, you had to push it to start it, I remember. And she went in every Saturday morning into Easton's. And she parked at Nelson's Filler and went in, bought a book, and sat in her Fiaruno or wherever it was all day long till she finished the book. Very happy with her own company. And for a special treat, she'd buy the book in Easton's and drive all the way up to Head and read all day long, on her own. You knew within a week? Did it take her longer to realise? I have no idea. Okay. Did you never talk about it? Like, when did you first turn me on? No. <laughs> no. That wasn't the sort of conversation. <laughs> when did you know I was amazing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you, you can't do that, you know. But suffice to say, we met every night. You did know, you? Or nearly every night. So... You knew, you know, it's something you either know or you don't know. Yeah. And it was, a, without thinking too hard about it, I could see it as a disaster coming down the line. You know, I was married with three kids, um, I had responsibilities, etc., etc., and I was crazy about this woman. It, it was going to end up in tears, somebody's tears, you know. Breaking up having an affair, any of those things are painful for somebody, mm. you know, let's be quite clear. And I felt full of joy at one level and guilt at another level. So you're wandering between night and day on that one. Mm. Can I ask you a question? Go for it. Yeah. Like me, you're a member of AA. Yes. Uh, I was making a point in a book I wrote that once you realize you're an alcoholic and once you abstain from drinking, you have to do a lot of thinking about yourself. Who am I? What's driving me mad? Why can't I cope without a gallon of whiskey down my throat, you know? And it demands, it says in the AA book, you know, absolute honesty. At least honesty with yourself, mm. you know. And you come through that as a sort of a new person. At least I did. How was that for you as a matter of interest? So the process of self-reflection or yeah. self-examination was one that I actively avoided and successfully avoided for years. And I... Took an ocean when I was 31 to start a psychotherapy course. I went back to college. 
Yeah. And the first year was all about looking at yourself. It was all about reflecting on what you'd been through in your life experiences. And for that whole year, it felt like the walls were closing in because whatever way I turned, I kind of had to confront the relationship I had with drink and drugs at the time. And it was the most uncomfortable. Um, and then I went into AA and that process continued. The drink was removed, but that process of looking at myself and trying to learn who the hell am I and yeah. why has drink has got this hold over me and like, what the hell do I do now that I don't drink? Like, it, it, it's not an easy process. It wasn't for me at all. I had to go right back to childhood stuff and family stuff and how I saw myself and it made a lot of sense to me that somebody with my head would need the kind of anesthetic of drink to deal with a lot of the things I'd been through. But I got to the point of realizing if I didn't stop drinking, I would be in real, real trouble. How did, how did you get to that point? I actually found it a very good pr process because I became an existentialist when I was 15. If you ask me what's an existentialist, uh, I would have difficulty telling you in any serious way. But if you take the background, mm. Ireland was 99.9% .9 Roman Catholic. It was a theocracy. Uh, there were things you behaved properly and then eventually you went to hell, a little burning in purgatory maybe for minor misdemeanors and so on. It was all graded. And I came to the conclusion that this was a load of nonsense. And I had asked myself, well, then, you know, what will you be? Who will you become? You know, you don't like all the things that people offer as rewards for being good. You don't want to be a criminal because it's too messy. You know, I wouldn't like to be locked up. Then I started reading uh, Sartre and Camus and these nihilists, really, you know. And I became an existentialist. And existentialists are the sort of people who spend a lot of time examining themselves, you know. But you have to come to a conclusion. Do you have any purpose in life? Do you, as a human being, have any role to play that's of any significance, you know? What is the point of this life? What mm. is the point of being human? So I was sort of used to asking myself questions like that. By the way, I never found any answers, you know, uh, which is a frustrating thing. And now I'm in my late 80s, I've come to the conclusion I probably wasn't asking the right questions. Okay. You know, if you look at yourself, any of us, how we were shaped, how we were formed, it's all to do with your background, it's mm. all to do with who you knock around with, who your best mate is, what your parents are like, how they see themselves, you know. And we inherit so much from somebody else that we didn't choose to inherit. Parents, you didn't ask for them. It goes on and on and on. And when you strip those away, you have to ask yourself, well, what's left? Is this me? It's an interesting question, because then I'm only shaped by my surroundings. Mm. 
Well, I believe there should be something more. And Marion did, but on a very different level than I would think about it. You know? How would she think? She was a very slow, deep thinker. Um, her mother and family were devout religious scores. They went to Mass every day and all that. And it was, their religion was part of what they were and what they did and what, how they thought, you know. And suddenly, even in the group I knocked around with, she began to meet people who actually didn't agree with the church, didn't agree with most things, you know. And uh, she had to go through all that, uh, not necessarily rewrite herself, but rethink herself. You've used the phrase, I think, we were like 15-year-old teenagers addicted to one another that just never grew up. Yeah. That kind of conjures up for me like a description of a relationship that was, was never boring, was, was always fun. There was a lot of excitement in it. Is that true? Yeah, you use a few words there. Like, it was always interesting. Mm. You know, fun is a very strange word, you know. Uh, but we had a lot of excitement. Yeah. We had a lot of interest. We had... We were both bookworms. We loved travel. And I can nearly hear people saying, well, it's all right for you, you had money. We didn't have money, no. you know. Uh, we went out, we made some, spent it, and we forever skint. But didn't mind sleeping in railway stations or airports or trains, anything at all. It was always an adventure. I had a friend whose son was getting married in uh, India to a very nice Muslim girl and my friend couldn't go to the wedding and I said I would go and make a speech and we went to Kerala which is an extraordinary state in India and before we went and Marion was very excited about this and I said you know are you going to talk to your doctors before you go mm. I said this AFib heart Carol, there's no place to get it in, you know, you're chancing it. I said, I don't need to know basis. I talked to them when I came home. We flew in on a Sunday and she was dead on a Monday. Mm. I go around saying, maybe I should have said more, maybe I should have put more pressure on her, but she's a grown person, own free will, decided that the fun of the travel was much more interesting than looking at a boring doctor, you know, and uh, it would go away. She had an indifference about her health, which was obviously the end of her, so to speak. And it was interesting because then when I was writing the book, I was writing about my daughter, Sinead, and it really struck me. Sinead was opening a parcel in the hall in the house we lived in, and she was squatting down, and a wasp stung her on the bottom. Okay. And she grabbed her bottom and let a yelp out of her. And I said to her, does it hurt? And she said, I'm far too busy to cry. <laughs> and that would have been Marion. Right. She was far too interested to be bothered with things like a bad heart or anything like that, you know. Where was the adventure? What we were doing? So you would have been concerned about her health prior to that trip to India? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. As she was with mine, you know. But not at the same level because I didn't think I was as bad as she was. Those early days after she died, after the funeral and kind of the crowds disperse, within a few months, COVID broke. Yeah. Like, how was the adjustment to living a life? We're sitting in your home now here. It's, it's gorgeous. How was the adjustment to life without her companionship? I was numb. Really? Yeah. I had, well, I'd lost a daughter, but that wasn't the same. And I lost a part of me, you know, and uh, I didn't know what to replace it with. I didn't know who to talk to. Um, no. Everybody was incredibly supportive. And so on. Well, we were cocooned, and I was sitting here. Uh, are you married, by the way? I am, yeah. since 2019. Well, you know the language that couples have who get on well? Mm. And it's a subliminal, they know what each other is nearly going to say under certain conditions. Yeah. For instance, I don't think I'd make a move. She'd be there reading and I'd be down there reading. And she said, yeah, and I'll have one too. Because she somehow knew I was getting up to make a cup of tea. No language. Mm. There must have been some gesture, some movement. Um... And you learn this unspoken language with somebody you live with for a long time. And that's all you can describe it as. If you're close, you communicate on all sorts of different levels. And those levels, I never realized how important they were. And they were cut off for me. Mm. And you're suddenly lost. You've lost a language. You've lost a partner, but you've lost a a communication that you've had for 40 or 50 years, which is nearly sort of a subliminal conversation, but it's very much part of who you are, mm. or at least who I am, you know. Mm. And I sat here, and uh, I'd ring people, or people would ring me, and I really didn't know what to say to them. And then I was fortunate in ways. Uh, my friend Patrick Farley came along and said, would I do a documentary about Marion with him? And I said, I would if he was doing it because I'd trust him. And uh, I said, I don't want to do anything maudlin or mawkish or anything like that. And uh, he said, fine, we won't do it. And I did a documentary. And I talked about death, my observation on death, which I'd never been through before at this level anyhow, and uh, how it leaves you so empty and so lost. And uh, what are your thoughts on it? I, I really don't know what my thoughts are on it. I don't have any thoughts. I had the thought of no thought, if you'd like that as a contradictory idea, you know. Mm. And then this idea of a Zen garden came to me that uh, I needed so something that would occupy me. Something fairly interesting, 
but daft as a brush. And I thought, this is it. And hence the same <laughs> garden. <laughs> but uh, I thought, this has to end somehow. You know, I just can't sit here for the rest of my life, you know. And uh, I don't want to get married again. Or I don't want to go through all those processes of learning somebody or knowing somebody or anything like that. Um, I have lots of friends. I have great sons. I have all those things, which are wonderful at one level. But I'm nothing of only me, and me is not a great person to live with me. Mm. Uh, we got a lot of response uh, to that documentary. And I think it has something to do with COVID as well. Ireland does funerals well. Mm. Bury our dead well. We say all sorts of things about the deceased that not one word of truth in it. You know, he's a wonderful man or he's a bollocks or whatever he was, you know. The life and soul. Yeah. And so on. But we bury our dead well. Maybe it's a peasant thing. I worked in Africa quite a bit. And funerals were huge. People came to pay respects. Maybe that's how society holds together. I don't know, but we do it. But uh, you couldn't bury your dead. 20 in a church, no neighbours calling. And I think my grief, if that's the word I needed, resonated with a lot of people, just on how alone you are when your loved one dies. No matter how good the people are, and they are, and the nice things they say about you and her and all that, you're suddenly saying, Jesus, I'm here alone. Hmm. You know, this isn't touching me. Yeah. I met a woman later on after I did that program, and she's in the political world, and they would have to write to the constituencies when one or other of the partners died, you know. And she said, and her own husband had died. And she said, I've been writing letters now for 40 years, commiserating people on the loss of their loved one or whatever. And she said, it was only when my husband died did I realise I was writing a dose of bullshit. Uh, that it was meaningless because you don't know what to say to somebody whose partner dies. We have a formula for saying it, you know. Uh, it's a tricky one. Yeah. You mentioned Sinead, your daughter. Yeah. From reading your book, it was a subject that yourself and Marion, Marion in particular, was never comfortable talking about. Yeah, never. From day one. Yeah. I can't offer you any answers. I really can't. I have a thousand and one theories and so on. Uh, I remember uh, somebody suggested she go and see a psychiatrist to help her through her grief. This is your territory. And uh, she used four-letter words as to what the psychiatrist could or couldn't do with their brief, she said, it's my grief, my sorrow, and I'm not sharing it. Okay. 
riddled me that. And uh, how best to phrase this? I think talking to somebody like a psychiatrist can be very good at a whole series of levels, you know. Why wouldn't you? Uh, it diffuses all sorts of anger and emotion in you and so on, you know. But just because you go in and rabbit about it for a while doesn't make it go away. Her loss of her daughter was personal to her. You and I and you will never have a baby. No. So we can only guess at what it's like to manufacture a baby inside you. And I don't think there are words to describe the process that a woman must undergo to have a baby. I mean, she grows something inside her, and out of pops and says, how are you? And there must be an extraordinary bond. It's something that is all yours. Mm. And I think that must impact on the producer of the baby, i.e. the woman, in some way that we will never understand or know. That's where I think Marion was in some way. I don't know. I mean, she and I talked about everything, including Sinead. But uh, there was a sort of a point and it stopped the conversation. Mm. And I didn't feel it was my right, I suppose, to go any further. Nor indeed did I feel that Marion had to answer any questions. You know, if she was sad, if she was broken-hearted, if she was all these things, you know. But those are her griefs. Mine, I had mine. But they were different, you know. You're entitled to have your grief. You're entitled to be sad. I meet a lot of people I've met, you know, who don't want to show that they're afraid or that they're hurting or anything because... You know, men are the worst in the world. Yeah. Even when they're screaming out, they're starting, oh, I'm grand, nothing wrong here, you know. And they're not. And you look at their faces and you know they're not. But that key won't turn to allow them to say, no, I feel terrible. Did you allow yourself to tell other people that you felt terrible in your most difficult days of grieving Sinead? I guess I did. Well, back to a, you know, I've come to the conclusion, you know, that we bottle up too much as human beings. Mm. And we make issues out of things that aren't issues if we talk about them. So, not everything, but by and large, I just try and tell it how it feels. It works for me. I have no problem talking about Sinead at all. Now, I had a problem, and I still have, and I haven't done it. She's buried down there, just about a mile down there. Okay. And Marion's buried a mile down there, in the same church. Our graveyard, rather. And, uh, oh, for years and years and years, since we moved up here 30-odd years ago, I drive up and down that road every day, and I let her shout when I'm on my own out the window, how are you today? 
and I'd carry on a conversation with a 10-year-old. That's who she was, a simple, ordinary, buzzy 10-year-old. And then by the time we got to the crossroads, that was it. The conversation was over. And then we buried Marion there, and uh, it suddenly struck me, I'm not saying hello to Sinead anymore. Just out of the blue. I hadn't noticed myself, you know. And somehow, I don't know, I never said hello to either Marion or Sinead, both women I loved deeply, you know. And I can't give you an answer that makes one ounce of sense. You know. Do you have a theory as to why that's been the case? I have this idea that they're now an entity, two of them together, you know. I think part of my conversation was um, with Sinead was I felt she might be lonely. Okay. <clears throat> Down a hole is, dark hole is not a nice place. I don't know. Yeah. But now they're complete. And I'm out of that loop for the moment. Yeah. You okay? Yeah. You want to take a break? You okay? I'll have a bag. Drop <laughs> more tea. Sorry about that, but that's me. I don't think apologies are necessary. Ah. It's a strange one. Yeah. Your parents still alive? Both my parents are still alive and only this year I became a parent. Yeah. So as you were talking about the bond or the relationship between a mother and the child that she gives birth to, I'm, I'm yeah. very much aware of that in my own home. I look at my wife and I, I, I know that there's something between her and my son that is more profound than yeah. anything I'll have with my son. Yeah. I can't describe it, but I know it's... Yeah. It exists. It has to be. Yeah. And I don't know it either, but I accept it somewhere on a different level, you know. Yeah. They communicate. How? I don't know. You use the term sunset walk in the book. Yeah. I think that was the term you, you, you used to describe the journey that yourself and Marion would go on after she retired and you'd have more space and more time together. Yeah. How did you imagine that walk going? With great excitement and interest again, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, Tanukin used to say, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, which was a saying of hers. But she was thinking of doing something like this a couple of days a week and in between minor bouts of professionalism of that, we would go back to about 101 different bits of the world we'd never seen and always wanted to see. 
that was a dream in funny ways. Because you're, the only way you can do that at a certain age is probably by cruiser or something. Uh, when we did a lot of it, we were physically fit and you didn't mind dusting down on a railway station or any of those things or hanging around a train terminal, you know, waiting for the train that left 24 hours beforehand you know, or something. And all the physical limitations would have been huge after a certain time, you know. Because if you travel fairly rough and you want to go to places that are fairly rough, for instance, I was, had listed the Atacama Desert as one of the places I wanted to go to. It's in Chile, where rain has never fallen in geophysical time. Ever, ever, ever. That was on our list. But looking back at it now, we were too old, would be too old. I've been on the skeleton coast in Africa a couple of times, you know, and it's in constant fog all its life. So whole species of animals and vegetation have grown up in this constant fog. And uh, now the world is changing, that's all going to die, and the uh, fog will move further up the African coast and all that ecosystem is gone and we thought we'd go there just to wave goodbye to a world that will no longer exist in a while mm. all those sort of things great plans okay. uh, tons of books and tons of laughs sunset walk wow and it brings me back do it now yeah that's the only time you got. Yeah. One of the scenes you wrote about in the book, I think it happened a few weeks before Marion died. You were both in front of a television. She turned the television off and turned to you and said, you'll never know how much I love you. Yeah. What did you say back? I don't remember what I said. I probably said thank you. It was out of the blue. It, it's written like that in the book, that it was... Yeah, we're watching Al Jazeera and another bloody war. She just sat up in bed, turned off the telly and said, you'll never know how much I love you. Turned on the telly. And I said, oh, thanks. And just carried on. Yeah. So where her head was, no idea. There's no response to that. Mm. Except... A great feeling of joy. But for me. Yeah, I'd imagine. It's one of those. She tended to do things like that. You know, if you're driving down the road and you knew she'd been thinking about it for ages, about something. And I remember one day driving down the road, she said, You really sure you don't believe in God? I said, Yeah. Oh, right. I'm sure you have conversations like that too with your spouse. Yeah, she can often say things and I wonder where that came from. Well, yeah, where does that come from? Yeah. I don't know. 
But can I say this? It's very pleasant, you know, and it's part of this bonding, you know, when they talk about love and a couple loving each other. Love is a sort of a variable, you know. Mm. When I'm 20, I love you one way. When I'm 30, I love you another way. When I'm 50, I love you another way, you know. It's still the same sort of emotion, but it takes on different emphasis, I think, you know. Mm. And of course, it also takes on, I guess, habit. You know, you wake up in the morning, you know, exactly in bed with you, you know, and, uh, you know, she doesn't take sugar. And all that mundanity of life, but it goes to make, in my opinion, when you put them all together, it makes a great picture of solidarity, togetherness, what I believe life is, is about, you know. You know, the American women used to say years ago, married men make great husbands. Mm. And, um, but Marion and I had been married before. And there are very obvious pitfalls when your marriage starts. We had gone through a lot of those, you know. So if it looked like this was going to be a heated conversation over something, just don't go there. You know, you don't have to prove a point. You don't have to prove the world is round. Just don't go there. So we saved ourselves a lot by learning from previous marriages that there are no-go areas. Don't fight over them. They're not important, you know. You can live without them or with them, you know. It worked very well for us. Bar drink, I think. I never had a row with Marion, and I didn't have a row with her over a drink. She laid down the facts as she saw them, and I couldn't disagree with them, and I changed. We were impossible with money. We either had a few bows or we had nothing. And uh, so we never had a row over money because we were both skint. So the conversation was, how do we get out of this one, you know, rather than it's your fault. Yeah. You know, there's a difference. Yeah. So I actually believe we had a very harmonious life. John, thank you so much for sharing your story and for inviting us into your home. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. Very much for listening to me. Uh, I do go on a bit, though. But anyhow, see how it goes. It's good to see you, I hope. Hi, John, this is a real pleasure. Really? It's really special. Thanks a lot. It's been an interesting journey, my life, yeah. for me. I'll have to come back and see the garden at some point. Do in the spring. And see how it's doing. Do, I'm serious. Yeah, I'd love to. Sit a while with me. We'd love to. Oh my God, that was an absolutely brilliant way of spending a morning. I don't know how you felt. Two and a half hours we were there with John. So from meeting him in his Zen garden, first of all, was pretty amazing. And then he brought us to his home and we had fairly lengthy conversations before and after the recorded conversation. What an interesting, remarkable life and man. Honestly, it was such a pleasure just sitting there in the corner and to watch him just 
light one cigarette after another after another and just endless cups of tea and Richie it was really fantastic yeah honestly I I, I could have spent way more time oh. with him if he'd allowed but at some point we had to leave we had to get up and say goodbye <laughs> So just before we wrap up, we are absolutely delighted to say that episode is brought to you by now. I'm not sure if I've said this in public before. I think I have. But I'm actually quite a big football fan. And as I mentioned (laughs) earlier in the show, there's some excellent games coming up in the Premier League. If you sign up for a Now membership, you can look forward to watching Man City, Liverpool, Newcastle, Man U and Chelsea, Man U in very quick succession. And of course, there's plenty of Champions Cup rugby coming your way too, with Munster playing Exeter and there's a repeat of last year's final as Leinster travelled to La Rochelle. You can stream all that and more with a Now membership. Right, I just want to say a huge thank you once again to John Clark for inviting us up into his home and for being so welcoming and accommodating for the whole time that we were there and thank you Gillian. thank you very much Richie episode is a second captain's podcast and is part of the ACAS creator network thanks for listening we'll chat to you next week second captain's. Second captain, first captain, whatever.